I called her and we spoke for such a long time about her life and her experiences and the things that she had been through. And, you know, she told me about a lot of the practical things and you know, connected with my ideology as a, as a leader and as, as someone running for office. She spoke about the fact that she didn't have health care, so she never went to the doctor when I was in the womb. And, you know, she was someone that was caught in this cycle of poverty. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and today you're going to meet candidate for Congress, Maxwell Frost. He called me from Orlando, Florida. Maxwell is a transracial adoptee who grew up loved and supported, but a crossroads in his life, the decision to run for public office or not, made him realize he wanted to get some answers about his birth mother and his adoption. Speaking with the woman, Maxwell learned about the cycle of poverty her community has faced. Hearing her story and her unscripted delivery of one of his life mantras were part of what he needed to validate his run for office. This is Maxwell's journey. Recently, my wife Michelle forwarded an article from the Washington Post about a young man in Florida who was inspired to run for Congress, partially because of his adoption reunion experience. This young guy, Maxwell Frost, also credited his adoption and his family with the love, support, and opportunities that empowered him to even feel like he could make a difference. Maxwell was adopted at birth, and he always knew he was an adoptee partially because his parents were open about his adoption, but also because he's a transracial adoptee, so it was kind of obvious. Growing up, his parents offered to share what they knew about his biological mother. And I always said no, and it wasn't because I hate her or anything like that or have any animosity, just because I didn't really care, to be honest. I loved my life, I loved my parents, and I just didn't have any wants or needs to knowing about my beginnings and my biological family. And I kept that, you know, even as I turned 18, as you know, when you turn 18, you you have a right to go, you know, get, get that information yourself. Never did, never really cared. It wasn't until I started thinking about running for office that I was in this crossroads where I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do this or not. And just something inside of me told me I needed to connect with my biological mother. and that conversation is really what changed things for me. And that's how I connected with her. My, my parents didn't have her contact information. They just kind of told me the story and showed me her Facebook and, and it just went from there. That's amazing. Before we go too far down the line though, I'd love for you to tell me a little bit more about what life was like growing up in adoption. You've already revealed that you're a transracial adoptee. What was your community like? Cause you know, some children of a white couple often grow up in a white community and therefore feel very yeah, much yeah. alone. Tell me a little bit about your own community and your life growing up in what is a very public thing about your private life, being an adoptee where it's visible yeah. to people. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I grew up in a, I grew up in, in an area that has a lot of Hispanic folks, not a ton of black folks, but a good amount of black folks as well. And honestly, never really thought about race or anything like that as a kid was always just kind of living my life 
I always knew I looked different from my parents. My mother's Cuban. She came here from Cuba in the late 1960s. My father is born in Kansas, but he's a he's a musician who plays steel pans. My mom's a teacher. And I always felt that diversity in, in my elementary school, in my community. But, you know, when I really came to this area and this crossroads where I was really thinking about things in a real way was later on in high school where I started thinking about my blackness. And, you know, I'm Afro-Cuban, I'm, I'm black and I'm Latino, and I was always really in touch with my Latino side. You know, I grew up Cuban, right? You know, I grew up eating arroz con pollo and mm-hmm. Cuban food and Cuban bread and going to Hialeah almost every weekend to visit my, my mom's side of the family. And that was just such a big part of my life. Spanish was my first language. And then I had to go to Esau and I learned English. Now I speak Spanglish. I always joke around. <laughs> but I've always been in touch with the Hispanic side of my life. But my my blackness was something that at some points I was kind of even ashamed of, to be honest. And that's no fault of my mother. Um, I think just, you know, the life I was living, the world I was in. I mean, you know, when people would say I was black in elementary school, I remember telling people, oh, no, I'm not black, I'm brown. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until later on and I think later middle school, early high school that I really started having real like black friends and learning just about this culture that I had missed out on being a black man. And I got frustrated because I felt like I had been denied that. And I wasn't mad at my parents though. I was kind of mad at myself. And I, as I grew up, I just kept like immersing myself in, in what it means to be black and what it means to be black in America. Right. And about those inequities that are, that, you know, sometimes I felt insulated from, but at the end of the day, no matter if I was adopted by white people or not, that I was still at the end of the day, a black man in this country, in the South. And thinking about what that meant for me in terms of culture, in terms of the way I see the world and the way the way the world sees me was a difficult journey, but and something that sometimes I feel like I'm still on, but it's something I kind of did alone and with some of my best friends. And again, I don't blame my parents and it's no fault of my parents. But it was just something I always thought of. But, you know, I'll tell you this one thing. My dad's a musician. He went to University of Miami. He's a, he's a jazz guy. And that journey was always easier because I was always in touch with my blackness in terms of music because I was just always connected to to jazz, which is, comes from, you know, black folks, right? And And so that's something that my dad really gave me to help me through that journey of recognizing and realizing and getting in touch with my blackness. Yeah. I like hearing the piece where you're not blaming your parents. I've often said that you can only teach somebody what you know, right? As a as exactly. a as a white person who grew up where they did, I'm quite sure there was no instance in their upbringing that taught them about say black hair, right? It's just yeah. not going to yeah. be a thing that they would inherently know and therefore it it is not their fault that they're unable to help you get in touch with your blackness. It's something that we f- have to find cultural relevance for in ourselves. And it's not just a black thing. There are folks who are adopted who go through ancestry DNA and realize they are Irish. And they're like, holy macro, that's something I need to explore. And suddenly they're off to Ireland, right? It's just a thing that we all have to deal with. And, you know, their parents, if they had grown up, say, you know, in Florida, where you are, might not have had too much of an Irish connection to know that that was something that they should be helping their child get in touch with. So it's good that exactly. you sort of recognize that they could only teach you what they know. And but it sounds like you did have some connections to 
elements of culture in your life, and, and that's also good to hear as well. Maxwell is the older sibling in his family. He has a younger sister who is biological to his parents. When I asked how he and his family got along, he said things were good, and he feels really lucky for his adoption, especially after hearing about the things his biological mother was going through when he was born and why she felt like she couldn't keep him. Maxwell said he used to attend meetings at church where other adopted kids would express their challenges in their adopted lives. But he would leave the meetings not feeling connected to their struggles. His life was good, and his life story was not the same as theirs. He was adopted at birth, so he didn't share some of their feelings of wanting to separate and return to their families. And, like, I never had that animosity against my parents. I never hated them and wanted to go back with my previous mother, you know what I mean? And yeah. but when I'd be in a lot of the support group meetings, like I'd be hearing like, yeah, I, you know, I hate my parents. I want to go home to my real mom and stuff. And I never really related to that. And I'm glad, but I always, you know, those were, those meetings are important for me, especially as I got to meet other adoptees. Cause it really made me realize the totality of what adoption is, how, you know, how going into foster care, you know, can be a good experience for some, you know, a really traumatic experience for others, how, yeah. you know, just the different things different people have been through. So that was really eye-opening for me. But I've always had, you know, it's always been a regular family environment. My dad, you know, gave me a drum set in the second grade, changed my life forever. I mean, my dad used to go over to my biological mother's house when she was pregnant and like, put the headphones on her belly to play music because it was so important to him that <laughs> awesome. that was a big part of my life. Yeah. So it's really cool. How about your teenage years? I'm on your website. You're running for Congress. You've got information out there. And it says that as a young man, I experienced police abuse firsthand and saw my community ravaged by gun violence. Tell me a little bit about that experience growing up for you. Yeah, a lot of that happened actually like after high school. You know, I, when I was 15 years old, the Sandy Hook shooting is what got me into politics. My dad's always been in the politics. You know, he, he always has the who's on. He's always talking about his opinions. And so that was always a big factor in my life. But what pushed me to go from just talking about it or debating to wanting to actively make change was Sandy Hook. I remember going to the memorial in D.C., and meeting a guy named Matthew Soto, his sister Vicky was one of the teachers at Sandy Hook who were who were killed and hearing her story of how she hid her kids in, in the closet to save their lives and seeing a 16-year-old crying and talking with the demeanor of a 60-year-old over his sister who was murdered for just going to school, it changed my life. That's where I got involved in politics. I would go to work on campaigns, ended up working for the ACLU of Florida. Then I got hired for the National American Civil Liberties Union went to go work for a gun violence prevention organization called March for Our Lives that came out of the shooting that happened in Parkland. And all those experiences, and, and that was that's my career, being an organizer, um, really helped shape the way I see the world. And so that was really important to me. As far as my interactions, you know, and the, the, the interactions that I had as far as criminal justice reform is concerned is I was, you know, I went out to protest during the Black Lives Matter uprising mainly because I really wanted to make sure people were being safe and strategic. I saw a lot of videos of things going haywire online, and I had experience with protesting. And so I went out for months and months just protesting and making our voices heard. And, you know, in that time, I'd been tear gassed and maced, and I spent a night in jail. I was arrested. And 
experienced, you know, verbal abuse in, in jail and stuff. And, you know, those, those experiences, you know, they add up and they, they change the way you see things. I remember, I forgot this quote, but, you know, the, in the in the civil rights era, just if you look at these videos and if you're if you get hit over the head with a club by, you know, an officer or somebody who's meant to protect you, it can really change the way you see the world. And, and it could really change the way you see things. That's not to say like all all folks are bad or anything. It's these are you know specific experiences, but they do they do change the way you see things. They do change the way you interact with different folks. And you know all these experiences all stack up to make you into the person you are, into the the, the feelings you have, and the way you think about things. I remember I didn't talk about this, but like the specific way I connected with my biological mom was that my parents gave me her Facebook. They told me the story. And, you know, I'm like stalking her Facebook. <laughs> you know, I'm like, <laughs> wow, like this is my biological mom. It's the first time seeing her pictures of her and stuff, you know, seeing the resemblance and all that. I've never, I've never seen anyone that looks like me, except the weekend. I'm told that I look like the weekend, but I'm not related <laughs> to the weekend. As far as I know, because I don't know, I have a good amount of biological siblings that I, a lot of them, I don't know anything about them. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe the weekend. <laughs> but either way, so, you know, I was on the Facebook and, and I saw that I had one mutual friend with my biological mother and it was, it's my barber, my barber of over a decade. <laughs> so I text my barber. I said, Hey, do you know, you know, I said her name. I saw your friends on Facebook and he called me and he's like, Hey, how do you know her? And I said, well, I mean, she's my, she's my biological mother. I just found out. And we were just kind of there. He paused for a minute. He goes, dude, I know your mom. And then I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I used to live with your mom. Like at a high school, they lived together as friends with somebody else. My my barber is actually somebody who, you know, when I worked for the ACLU of Florida, I was working on a, a thing called Amendment 4. It was a ballot referendum to get voting rights with for people who had previous felonies and who had served their time. And part of the thing that kept me going in that fight was the fact that my barber is someone who, when he was very young, I think like 18, he committed a crime that gave him a felony. And now he has a family. He's a outstanding citizen. He's someone who's vocal in the community. He's never been able to vote his whole life until this past cycle because of that bill we passed, that oh, law. Wow. But either way, so I'm on the phone with him, right? Keep in mind, like he lost his right to vote a long time ago, got it back. He said, Max, that that crime I committed, you know, or that, that thing I did was because I was trying to help your mom pay her rent your biological mother pay her rent. Oh my gosh. And yeah, I know. So, I mean, just, it was very tearful conversation. It was just like, I hung up that phone with him and I was like, wow, I don't know if you're religious or not. I grew up Southern Baptist, but I was like, wow, what a blessing. This is like a spiritual thing for me. So uh, he told me a bunch of things about my biological mother that I didn't really know. And then he gave me her cell phone number and uh, he was like, let me tell her you're going to call. <laughs> you know, so that's mm. just kind of cold caller. And I called her and we spoke for such a long time about her life and her experiences and the things that she had been through. And, you know, she told me about a lot of the practical things and you know, connected with my ideology as a, as a leader and as, as someone running for office. She spoke about the fact that she didn't have health care. So she never went to the doctor when I was in the womb. And, you know, she was someone that was caught in this cycle of poverty uh, because of just, the, you know, not, not that she's a bad person, but because of the world she was born into, the zip code she was born into, the situations she found herself in. I found out I had multiple siblings, like a lot. And she said she, you know, couldn't really afford to have me. And so my mom was this ESC teacher 
And my mom's assistant's friend was friends with my biological mother. And, you know, they knew that my mom was looking to adopt. They knew that their friend was looking to put up their baby for adoption. And they went out to dinner and that's where it happened. That's incredible. Wow. Sorry, I kind of off on a tangent there. But it's all good. This was this is fascinating stuff. I, I do want to just go back for a couple of little factoids here. So first of all, what kind of teacher did you say? A ES what? ESC, special education. Special education, got you. And if you wouldn't mind, just take me back to what was the reason that your parents were showing you your birth mother's Facebook page? Were you Had you been asking about her? What was the catalyst for that introduction? I asked. I asked. I, uh, you know, went up to them. I said, hey, you know, they knew I was thinking about running for Congress. And I said, you know, I was like, I'm really at a crossroads. I don't know if I need to do this. And I remember the night before I was just thinking about it and something told me that I needed to dig into my beginnings and I just felt like I needed to learn about it. I wasn't even really trying to talk to her, to be honest. I was just trying to learn the story. So my parents told me the story and then they said, do you want to see your Facebook? And I said, "Uh, yeah, sure. And that's where the ball started rolling on me connecting with her. My parents Mm -hmm. didn't really have her number or anything. They Mm -hmm. just knew that she, they just knew what her Facebook page was. Yeah. But I just wanted details on the story. What was it like for you to see her face for the first time on Facebook? It was pretty wild because we do have a lot of similar features. Digging through there, looking at like a lot of my biological siblings. There was like one sibling in particular that looked a lot like me. And that, that person is the one that's closest to me in age. And I remember kind of freaking out. The one that I freaked out the most, though, was when after I spoke with my biological mother, I asked about my biological father, who no one really knows what's what he's up to. My parents actually, when they adopted me, they before I before I officially became their their son legally, they had to put an advertisement in the Orlando Sentinel, which is our newspaper here, for 90 days, kind of advertising, hey, if you had this child born from this person, and if you're the dad, you you know come and collect or essentially like because the dad was out of the picture and was not involved in the adoption process there was some law or something where my parents had to put an advertisement in the newspaper kind of saying like hey if you want this child like you gotta step up now obviously he never stepped he never said anything Mm -hmm. so there's very limited information on my biological father but my mom had a photo of him i don't know how or where she got it from she sent it to me and it was a photo of him when he was my age and I mean, we look exactly alike. I mean, it, it was crazy. Wow. Uh, I, remember, I showed all my friends. I remember I called all every single one of my close friends and I was like, you're ready to see something crazy. And I would send them the photo and they would be like, dude. And, you know, because all my friends who grew up with me, they know I'm adopted too. And, and we would always joke the photo of my biological father. He's standing next to a Christmas tree and he's like towering over the tree. And I'm like, damn, I got everything except the height. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I got the smile. I got like, I literally looked exactly like this guy, but yeah. he's like towering. I'm like five nine, five eight. That's so I'm like, hysterical. damn. <laughs> so either way, that's so funny, and it's funny when I met my biological paternal side for the first time. You know, my cousin is you know over six feet tall. My biological father's a little bit taller than me, and uh, and I'm the youngest in the family now as well. And my wife just looked like literally looked at me and laughed and said, "Damon, you're the runt of the family." And I was just like, "Damn it." <laughs> So I'm very sensitive to that feeling that you just expressed. I'm with you 100%. 
but they're wonderful people, and you, like, you can't fault them for being taller than you. I asked Maxwell to go back for a moment because I was really curious about his drive for candidacy for public office. He said earlier that he didn't know what it was, but something about the crossroads of deciding to run for Congress made him feel like he wanted to know more about his birth mother and his origin story. He said he felt like he needed it, possibly to ground himself and his identity so that he could move forward confidently. I asked Maxwell what he learned about his birth mother and her life that solidified his desire to run for office and his commitment to action for the benefit of his community. For me, it had to do with her story. And, you know, she told me about her life. She told me about kind of the conditions of my birth and the fact that, you know, she'd been caught in this cycle of poverty and, and you know, there's crime and where she lives and just, you know, uh, something that a lot of folks in this country find themselves being a part of, not, you know, like I said, not because they're a bad person, but because of where they live and the conditions of their community. And hearing a lot about the fact that she had, you know, multiple kids and couldn't really afford to have another, that, you know, as a pregnant woman in this country, she could not afford or had health care to even go to the doctor, mm-hmm. you know, and I believe that health care is a human right. That's just my ideology. And so hearing that from my biological mother, you know, it was like solidifying everything I believe in, right? You know, mm-hmm. as far as healthcare for our people, as far as affordable housing, hearing about her troubles with money, you know, just kind of everything, right? As she told her story, it was connecting with every aspect of why I would want to run for Congress. And and I don't, don't quote me on it, but I don't even think I told her I was considering running, to be honest. We were just kind of having a discussion about our lives. So it wasn't like she was purposefully trying to feed me, you know what I mean? Sure. Like it was very natural. And at the end of the conversation, you know, we we're kind of wrapping up. And so, you know, you know, there's a, a philosopher named Dr. Cornell West, who's someone that I, I read and look, look up to him a good amount. And there's something he says where he goes, it's important that we see the world through the eyes of the most vulnerable. And that statement is kind of the motto of my organizing my life. It's something I always repeat. It's something I always talk to people about that. You know, I always say when we're planning an event or we're doing our work, let's think about the most vulnerable people. And being on the phone with my biological mother, <clears throat> at the end of our conversation, she said, like, hey, you know, I just want you to know you, you, I had you at the most vulnerable point in my life. Wow. And She said that? Yeah. You know, she said those words. And, like, hearing those words from her, first time I'm speaking with her, she doesn't know I listen to Cornell West. <laughs> she, she doesn't know about that quote. I don't think so. And, like, it was, again, at least for me, it was spiritual. Like, those were the kind of the last words she said on the first call hung up the phone and said, I have to do this. I mean, this is the next thing in my life. This is the next chapter in my life. And it was really because of that conversation. Now, I will say this was like the thing that pushed me over the edge, but there were so many things throughout my life that put me into this position. And my, my parents, you know, the way they raised me, the resources, the love, the, the lessons, without that, I would be able to even think about running for Congress. So I always like to say that, too, because I never want people to get the impression that that one conversation is the whole reason. That's the thing that pushed me over the edge and put me to make that decision. But I wouldn't even be making that decision if it wasn't for my parents. I'm really glad that you said that, because as I was listening to you, I was thinking that this is a young man who grew up with love and guidance and made the decision to run for Congress. And it was because you 
felt that kind of support, that you even felt like it was even possible. There are probably a lot of people of color in your community who would love to make change and don't know how to do it and don't feel empowered to step forward. But the home that you grew up in raised you to think that this was possible. And then your worlds came together by your parents basically introducing you to your biological mother and her unknowingly validating something that you had been feeling inside. It's just a really interesting connection between how your life started, how you were raised, and then the reconnection to how your life started by virtue of reuniting with your biological mother and her validating what you believe is your next purpose in, purpose in life. That's really incredible. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was a very powerful conversation. I remember something else we talked about was when, you know, when she was talking to me about her decision. I mean, I don't even know if she actually like technically put me up for adoption. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't know. If, I'm unfamiliar with the process, to be honest, but I don't think there was a thing she did. Right. It was more of word of mouth. And but her talking about just that she what like her her finances and her life and she was just not in a good situation of. I remember talking to her and there was something I wanted to tell her so badly. And I didn't know if it was disrespectful or I I didn't know if it was like wrong or messed up to say it, but I wanted to thank her for doing that because I love my parents, you know? And I I just, I really want to thank her for doing that. Yeah. So I like mustered up the courage in the conversation to tell her. And I was really scared because I was like, I hope she doesn't take it the wrong way, but she didn't. That's awesome. Yeah, I think a lot of adopted people would say the same thing, that they had a good or decent life and they're thankful for the life that they lived. And there's a lot, a lot of times we have questions about what could have been, because let's face it, like the, the removal of a child from the mother is a traumatic experience. There's a, there's a negative situation that initiates that whole process even being a possibility. But when it does work out well and the adopted person feels comfortable and loved and guided and and supported, all of the things that you want for any child, regardless of what the family structure is, that's an incredible thing for people to feel thankful for. And it, it's just a natural yeah. thing that I too shared with my own biological mother. And I didn't even think about it half as long as you did. I just knew I wanted to thank her because I wanted her to know that I was okay. And sort of thanking her for me was a validation of a decision that she was forced to make some time ago that she never knew the outcome of. And so I'm I'm glad that you sort of mustered the courage to actually do that because in some former fashion, I'm quite sure she was curious about whatever happened to that little baby boy that she had many years ago. Maxwell's parents have told him his birth mother used to come by their home to check on her baby. I got the sense he liked hearing that she was interested in him and concerned for his welfare after they parted ways. But the adults ultimately agreed it would be best if Maxwell didn't grow up with his birth mother checking in on him, so she stopped going. Maxwell said, When he was very young, maybe three or four, his parents were out and about when they stopped into a dollar store. To their surprise, one of the employees was his biological mother. She saw his parents with her son, their family, together, and she got emotional and ran off, his parents choosing to move in the opposite direction as well. 
When I asked Maxwell about his meeting with his birth mother, he told me they have not met in person by his decision. Their very first conversation was right before he announced his campaign and things got super busy. However, they do stay in touch and he texts messages with his birth mother quite a bit. There was just so much going on in my life. Like I had to quit my job to run. I ran out of money pretty quickly. So I had to start Ubering at night to like pay my bills. And like my life just became very stressful and very unstable for a long time, like a year throughout throughout the campaign. So in meeting her in person, I know it'd be, you know, just emotional. And I wasn't ready for it. And yeah. I asked her, you know, I said, can we wait till after the campaign? And I kind of told her the same thing because she said that, you know, she had told my a lot of my siblings that we had connected and they were really excited to talk with me. And I had to really think. I told my girlfriend about it and some of my friends. And I came to the conclusion that that's something I want to wait like a little bit for too, until we're all like stable because it's just a lot. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so I haven't seen her in person yet. We actually just texted. I was like looking at our text. We texted a like two weeks ago, trying to set a time to do it. But it's funny because now I'm in this time where I'm past the hardest part of my campaign. I still have a general election, but it's a very blue district. So things are looking good. Mm -hmm. And, but even now I think about like meeting her in person and me and my siblings and I'm like, damn, I'm so like, you know, even though I know I'm probably going to Congress, like I'm just trying to figure out how to be a congressman, you know, mm -hmm. and like, how to do a good job for my people. And, and I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I guess there's just no time that, that is a good time that where there's just, you know, life is on hold, at least for me, at least for the foreseeable future. So for nobody. Time to... I think of, you know, there's other situations in our lives where we try to plan for when it's going to be the best time for us. Like when should we have a baby? It's never the right time. You never have yeah. enough money. You never have enough resources. You're never mentally fully prepared, no matter how much great advice you get. And this is the same thing. Like, you can talk to yourself as much as you want about when you think you'll be ready. And unfortunately, that still won't be the right time. And it's just kind of the kind yeah. of thing you got to just kind of dive into, you know, be brave, accept it for what it is, but be comfortable in yourself, right? And you sound like a really strong dude who kind of knows who he is and where he's going. And and the fact that you've spoken with her, text with her, I feel like you're going to be just fine whenever you decide to yeah. meet her. And I would encourage you to do it before you're elected because you kind of want her to be there probably through that process. Like she's going to watch from afar. And I don't know how sort of politically active she is, but I suspect like she'll want to, you know, be included in some form or fashion. And... Uh, and it, it might be worth thinking about taking that step before you get too far down the line. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And honestly, yeah, that's the right thing, you know, because as I speak with other current members of Congress, you know, I mean, I feel like I have a million things on my plate right now. They're always like, yes, but you're going to have a million and one things on your plate <laughs> come January. Yeah. That's right. And take this time to you know, be, be with your family a lot more. And, and, you know, these things are important, but also this will be the chillest part of your foreseeable, at least two years. So yeah. it makes sense that now's a good time for me to connect and get dinner or something. Yeah. i I feel like it's the kind of thing that can really ground you further because knowing that the person is yeah. out there, but not having actually meeting them, it still leaves a loose end in my mind. And, and that may not be yeah. the case for you, but to me, 
just knowing they're out there and not having met them is just like, you know, when are we going to do this? <laughs> like, I'm, I would be so curious. And I would imagine that many elements of you probably are too. So I would yeah. encourage you to do it. I know you, you've got a gang on your plate and I, and I absolutely wish you the best for your candidacy. Let me just ask you, what, what have you learned about your biological father? I know you said there wasn't a lot of information out there, but tell me what you have sort of learned and whether he, he's even part of, whether he's even on the radar as a piece of your journey to search. He's not, you know, the only thing I know about him is that photo that I have of him when he was like 25 or 26, because he left right after my biological mother, you know, found out she was pregnant or around that time. Actually, I, I don't know the specifics, but he left, you know, right. before I was born. And my biological mother doesn't know anything about where he is or anything. My parents don't know. I know his name. I did some, you know, I'm a Gen Zer, so I did my stalking online, but could not find him. I remember I found one dude who lives in Orlando, had the same name, kind of like checked out, looked at his photos, like looked like he could be the age that my biological father would be. And I was convinced it was him for like two days and he looked nothing like me. And some of the, some of the posts he made were problematic too. I remember sending to my friends like, "I don't know, this might be my biological dad. What do you think? He looks a little <laughs> sketch." Yeah. But but then when I got the photo of him when he was 25, I was like, "Okay, this this is not the guy." So I can't find him. I looked everywhere too. I even looked on white pages and stuff. Like I was just curious. But yeah, he's he's he is not not findable at least to my extent. But I'm also you know I mean I, that was out of curiosity, and I think. I saw the I saw the photo and I think I got what I needed to be honest. I don't yeah. know if maybe that's just something I'm telling myself to be okay with not knowing anything. <laughs> but again, remember my my whole life I just never really cared and I feel like I got what I needed from that photo. Yeah. Cuz I just feel like I, you know, have my biological mother, I have all these siblings, like that's a lot. So, and yeah. you know, to be honest, it doesn't really seem like someone that I maybe even want to connect with either just kind of hearing about him, you know, I mean, maybe he's a good guy, but also, I mean, not to be morbid, but he also might not even be with us still. Like that's, that's the, that's the degree that no one knows where he's at. Yeah. I understand. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I am, you know, I don't believe that you should force a curiosity that's not there. I was, I'm was where you are now. I was so satisfied with just having found and met my biological mother, and I heard the story of how I was conceived and how he was not supportive of her, and I was just like, well, screw that guy. Like, if he didn't support her then, why do I want to know him now? But what I found was as I continued my life, I did the math, and it takes two to make me. And so I I did have some curiosity as to who this other person was, like, I only know half of why I'm here and I would like to at least lay eyes on this other person. And so I did end up searching for him and you know, it's my story ended up wildly going off the rails. But the point that I'm trying to make is don't force a curiosity. That's not there. If you don't need this in your moment, like you needed to find your biological mother because you were having this internal discussion with yourself about your candidacy in your life and what have you. You don't need yeah. this guy right now. So I would encourage you not to force it and just let it be what it is. One day you may turn around and be like, you know what? Damon was right. There are two two people in that equation. 
but until that day comes you know there's literally no reason to stress it yeah that makes sense that makes a lot of sense well, Mr. Maxwell Frost, I know you are a super busy dude. I'm not going to keep you. I could ask you question after question, but you have been so generous <laughs> with your time, man. This is really incredible. Well, thank you for having me on. Really great conversation. Again, appreciate your podcast and these stories and great talking. Excellent, man. Thanks so much. Take care, Maxwell. All the best to you, buddy. You too. All See right, ya. Later. Bye. Hey, it's me. Maxwell Frost is a transracial adoptee who feels thankful for the life he's lived in adoption. It was cool to hear him credit his family for the love and support that has activated him as a leader who feels like he can make a difference for his community in Florida. And what better motivation could there be to go to Congress than to know that he is standing up for the rights of people like his birth mother, who has been caught in a cycle of poverty and is striving to make the best of the circumstances she lives in? or for Maxwell's barber, who he learned was trying to help his birth mother pay her rent, made a bad choice, and lost many of his rights as a convicted felon, including the right to vote, which he regained thanks to Maxwell's work. We all have our motivations for trying to find our biological families, be it a longing to find mirroring faces that look like your own, the need to know medical history for peace of mind or to help you advocate for your best medical care, or sometimes, you're at a crossroads in your life, and the desire to know more about your own adoption is something that will help you answer lingering questions in order to move forward, as getting in touch with his birth mother has done for Maxwell. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you found something in Maxwell's journey that inspired you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I, really? Really? 